This is God's word. Verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For, as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. And we thank God for this, His Word to us. Okay, so in Philippians 3, Paul has reminded us that we are declared righteous not because of our religious activities, even though many of those activities are good in themselves, but we are made righteous as a result of our relationship with the Redeemer. We're saved in, in grace by the Redeemer. And you may remember back in the early part of uh, Philippians 3, Ritual doesn't save, circumcised on the eighth day, nor does heritage of the people of Israel, nor respectability of the clan of Benjamin, nor race, a Hebrew of Hebrews, nor religion in regard to the law, a Pharisee, not zeal as for zeal persecuting the church, not morality as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul could name all these things, and they could not save him. In fact, he says they are the way of the flesh. Paul's aim, I think, is spelt out for us very clearly there in verses 10 and 11. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, that's his aim, and you almost sense that Paul thinks that this may have caused some kind of discouragement among his readers. And so he adds very, very quickly, verse 12 and on, not that I have already obtained all this. Don't think that I've got there yet. And last week, of course, 
from verse 12 on, um, Jeff led us through those verses. I think we could sum it up by saying, I have been called, I am being kept, I hope to press on past and present and future. As verse 15 says, uh, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things, and if at some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Oh, to be spiritually mature. Oh, to be spiritually mature. To see things clearly and biblically and in a Christ-like way. But notice verse 16, often missed out, but very important, I think, only let us live up to what we have already attained. We are to keep on living by staying in the race, described in verse 14, running in our lane, you know, striving ahead, pressing on as we move forward. But how do we do that? I mean, how do we press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus? Well, I think in verses 17 to 21, we're given three answers to that, how we can press on. Following the gospel pattern, verse 17, avoiding those who live as enemies of the cross, verses 18 and 19, and remembering the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 20 to 22. That's what we're going to look at tonight. Here's the question. Do you really want to press on? Do you really want to press on? Let me pray first before we get into these verses. Lord, tonight, will you challenge us about our pressing on, about our straining towards the prize, to win the prize, this beautiful goal of being Christ-like and mature. Challenge us about this, that we will be pressing on day and daily, and show us how, even from these verses. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as you can see there, if you really want to press on, here's the first thing you've got to do. You've got to follow the gospel pattern, verse 17. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Six times in the New Testament, Paul says, follow me. It sounds like a, an egotistical booster, doesn't it? But no, I think verse 12 is already clearly states that he did not believe that he had arrived, that he was perfect, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. No. He's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. You see, we can give an example worth following only when we're following Christ. And the Philippians, in many ways, needed to see the gospel lived out in practical ways with skin on. They needed someone to show them how to live for Christ. They needed an example to follow. Join with others in following my example, brothers. Now, most of us have learned many, many things in life. And of course, most of the things we've learned, we've copied from others. That's the good things and, of course, the bad things. We have watched and we have copied parents and friends and siblings and teachers. 
But Paul's basically saying here, and we want to see that in, in the key verse later on, because I follow Jesus, follow me. You can safely follow me because I'm following Jesus. See, what we believe must be lived out, and lived out in such a way that the unsaved can see the gospel with skin on, and believers will have a mentor to follow. That's how he wants you and I to live. I think you know my um, love of Alistair Begg. He had a big influence on me, particularly in my um, early ministry. <clears throat> Alistair Begg used to oh, quote um, this poem, and maybe you've heard it if you've listened to any of his stuff. You're writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. And men read what you write, distorted or true. So what is the gospel according to you? You see, we all need a mentor to model Christianity before our eyes. And we all need to be a mentor to model Christ to others. So the question is tonight, I mean, who are you following? Join with others in following my example, brothers. Who are you following? An older saint? A leader? A teacher? An elder? Dare I say a minister? A friend? A parent? One who is, in a sense, further along the road of faith, further along the walk of faith, modeling humility, modeling maturity. Someone who might inspire you, someone who might instruct you. Heroes, of course, from the Bible. That could be somebody you could follow. A hero from the Bible. A hero from church history, perhaps. And you read everything that you can about this particular person. A hero from, from now. A real living person in the fellowship. Of course, the greatest one is, do I need to say, Jesus. There's no doubt about that. But there's also no doubt, as we see here in this verse, <clears throat> that the Bible says we are, along with him, we are to follow those who follow him. Mature mentors and models within the body. This is a key part of discipleship, a key part of growing maturity. And so Paul can say this, join with others in following my example, brothers. You see, they and we need an incarnation of spiritual maturity. We, we need to see what spirituality actually looks like. We, we need to see how spirituality actually lives in this broken world. And then we follow that example. Many verses, in fact, flick over to chapter 4 and verse 9 of Philippians. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Now, he was 800 miles away when he wrote this book to them. He was living in a Roman jail, and so they needed to remember. Paul's not perfect, but his Savior is perfect. And so as he follows Christ, they were to follow him. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16, Therefore I urge you to imitate me. It means to mimic me, copy me, impersonate me. 
whatever you see or whatever you hear, do it and be it, he says. And of course, the, the verse that kind of sums it all up and brings it all together is 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Emulate me, he says. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So actually, verse 17 is not really about Paul at all, is it? It's about Jesus. Jesus in Paul. That's why Paul is worth following. Jesus is the motive. He's the means. He's the reason. Follow me, he says in verse 17. Follow me. But notice, he says, and follow others. And follow others. Those people within the church who are very, very mature or seeking to be mature, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. So there must be more than one model. Jesus, yes. People from the past, yes. Preachers who are living in a world away from us, yes. But there has to be one and more that we follow within the fellowship. If we are going to press on, this is an extremely crucial principle. This is a combined team effort that's body life working at its best. Having those who live according to the pattern we give you together combined present a fuller, better picture of Christ-like maturity. See, one mature believer will have many strengths, of course, but also some weaknesses. Isn't that right? Many mature believers will have more strengths. And my thinking is their weaknesses are kind of diluted because of the combined strength of their witness. So having many in the those, and that the those really are more than one, those who are mature and living it that out day in, day out, they help in a sense smooth out the error and the immaturity that can be within any body of believers. And they present together a fuller picture of Christ-like maturity. So, Jesus, number one, one mentor, even Paul, is not enough. Not enough. But many mentors who together give a better example of the gospel pattern. Some, some words to look at there. Take note. In other words, listen up. Undivided attention. Watch and listen. This is important as a series. Take note of those who live according to the pattern. The word for pattern there is mark. The mark, like, like a seal. Um, a seal can be, or a mark can be seen, it can be appreciated, and of course it can be followed. You know, we need to leave a mark for others to follow, and we need to leave marks, or let others leave marks in us to follow. Take note of those who live according to the pattern we give you. Again, not a single mentor. A team, a group. Now, can you guess who some of those were? Those who were part of the those? Well, Timothy, he was there. 
Epaphroditus, he was also back and forth to Philippi. The loyal yoke fellow that we're going to look at next Sunday night, in chapter 4, verse 1. The question is, are you prepared to be part of the those who live according to the pattern of the gospel so that those who are younger can follow you? You're part of the those who are mature. So we need one, and we need more than one. Multiple people. Now, the application, I think, is pretty simple, but you can't be a lone ranger in the Christian life. You can't afford to get isolated. Isolated Christians get gobbled up, become ineffective. And if you're trying to be a lone ranger or jumping from fellowship to fellowship to group to group, you will struggle, you will fail. Get connected and be connected. Get into the church because you're already part of it. Get into fellowship that promotes accountability and maturity. And we have oodles of opportunities here to be part of discipleship groups. Don't try and be someone who thinks they don't need it because you need it. Because we all need encouragement and example of others. And also be careful. We model people's maturity. We don't model their immaturity. I'm sure there are times when I do show some signs of maturity. Watch there. There are other times when I know I can be really silly and childlike. Don't follow me then. And we need to be wise enough, we need to be courageous enough to recognize and follow maturity and to recognize and reject immaturity. So verse 17, join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we give you. We need preachers and authors we can learn from and copy. We need brothers and sisters who make a mark, a mark in us. We need many who will walk the walk and talk the talk, people of character and doctrine and skill. Okay, so you might say, well, Alistair, who, who, I mean, what about you? Give us your mentors. Well, the preachers that, that have had big impacts on me, I think back over the years, two of them are dead in glory, two are still very much alive. James Montgomery Boyce and R.C. Sproul. The two that are alive, Alistair Begg, I've already quoted Kevin DeYoung more recently. But as real living people who taught me, I think of alongside my parents, of course, um, people like T.S. Mooney, you've heard me talk about, John McGowan. I think about colleagues in ministry. I think of elders here within this fellowship. I think of the men who are in my discipleship groups over the years. Many who, who I seek to follow. So how do you begin this process? Well, it's the easier, the further away people are, in many ways, the easier it is. Start reading good authors. Start listening to good preachers. Have a zero tolerance of nonsense, and, and frothy stuff that will not feed your soul or lead you to maturity. It's harder, actually, when we come in. I, mean, I know it. I, I, you know, people have talked about this. But here's the first thing you can do. 
If you're really looking for a mentor and there's somebody you admire and somebody says, listen, I think that person can speak into my life, go and ask them, could we meet for prayer? That's what you start off with that. And then, you know, could we study a book of the Bible together? And by the way, if you want any help with that, Leslie Ann, who's just disappeared, um, will we'll help you with that, or, or Jeff, or any other members of the staff. Now, of course, we need the fruit of the Spirit to enable us to do this, especially patience. Because some people will run a mile away from such a request, but we shouldn't. And we need it. Each of us serves and is to serve, uh, is to be served, yes. Each of us mentors and should be mentored. And God is sovereign. What I can say with every, with 100% confidence is this. God wants this for you because he's commanded it. There's no secrecy here. Seek out help or seek out help to find help. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we give you. I have been called. I am being kept. I hope to press on. How do I press on? By following the gospel pattern. Simple, isn't it? Hmm. Simple to understand, hard to do. What about the second thing? Avoiding those who live as enemies of the cross. That's in verses 18 and 19. For as I've often told you before, and I say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. They, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And, they, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. In many ways, this is the flip side. We've got to reject the bad examples. And we've got to watch out and, and avoid spiritual enemies of the cross. We need to be careful with the wolves who dress up in sheep's clothing. And therefore, and there's a lot of debate about, is he talking about people outside of the church or inside of the church or both? I, I have a feeling he's talking about both. So they're out there, but they can also be in here. And we'll think a wee bit more about that next week um, in the early part of chapter 4. But you see how tender Paul is here? That's what makes me believe that this, there is within the church these people are because they, they, they live as enemies of the cross. He doesn't say they are enemies of the cross. They live as if they're enemies of the cross. I think that's the significant part of the phrase. It's really quite intimidating that uh, the principal of the college and expert in systematic theology is here, so I'll, if I'm wrong, he'll come up and tell us at the end. But that's why I see it. And that's why he, I think he breaks down in tears for these people. As far as I have often told you before, and I say it again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. He wails for them. But we're to avoid them. Because if we don't, they will drag us down, they will destroy us. And sadly, over the years, we have seen people who've come in and have sought to do that. And it's painful. Next week, we'll see how we might deal with those kinds of people and those kinds of disagreements. But how, how are they described here? Many live as enemies of the cross. The cross, of course, is the true touchstone of right behavior and right belief. 
I suppose the key test of a teacher is what does he say about the cross? And the key test of a hearer of a preacher is what he believes, what he or she believes about the cross. See, the cross reveals our depravity and the extent of our predicament and shows us that we cannot get out of the mess that sin has created by ourselves. But many don't want to hear that, and and they live as enemies of the cross. Now, outside of the church, they laugh at and mock the cross. Possibly uh, some of the extremes of verse 19 could be identified with them. But inside the church, what do we see? We see people sometimes downplaying the significance of the cross or adding to the cross or attempting to replace the cross. And, and these people, by the way, can, can be um, writing Christian books, speaking at Christian conferences, preaching in pulpits, having thousands follow them on TikTok and other social media. I say to those of you who are younger, be very careful what you watch or listen to online or through social media. there, There are a lot of wolves out there dressed as very attractive sheep. But these people with warped logic and with bible light theology live as enemies of the cross. And so how do we see it? Well, listen, it can come in a multitude of ways, but sin is reinterpreted or just ignored. Jesus is limited, and the Holy Spirit is elevated to a position he would never want. Sound doctrine is totally rejected. That's the kind of way it comes across. If you listen long enough, you'll see it. So we need a sound theology of the old rugged cross a place of forgiveness and salvation. We need to avoid such people. If we want to press on, we need to avoid many who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their God is their stomach. That's how also they're described. It's a graphic picture. It means their God is personal satisfaction. And their living revolves around sensuality. Now, there's nothing wrong with enjoying food and music and exercise and clothes and sex within the limits that God has placed. The problem is, of course, all the limits are breaking down. In fact, there are no limits as far as some are concerned. No right, no wrong, no such thing as sin. That's simply an invention of the religious extremists on on the right of the church, religious nuts. Personal satisfaction, personal expression, personal rights. become God. Their their God is their stomach. Isaiah 5, one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, among the seven woes, we have this one, verse 20, woe to you who call evil good and good evil. In other words, turning things on its head, you put darkness for light and light for darkness, you put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We're going to move on. Their glory is in their shame. In other words, what they should be ashamed of they boast in and the glory and what they um, should be disgusted by, what they ought to be apologetic about, they brag about. Kind of a reversal of moral standards, not unlike the Isaiah 5 that I mentioned just a few moments ago. It's a downward spiral. Very often it starts with um, just these people giving in to indulgence. So be careful where this begins. It begins just by simply giving in to indulging 
personal satisfaction. Then it grows to justifying themselves by saying that their, their behavior is proper, it's natural, it's normal, it's my right, it's the way I've been made. And finally, of course, they, they go public and they become promoters of it. But it always begins with indulging, then justifying, and then promoting. Their glory is in their shame. We can be desensitized so easily. Avoid such people if we're going to press on, if we're going to keep on to the end. And their mind is on earthly things, verse 19. At the, the vital center of their being, where life finds its direction, where attitudes are formed, where is the influence coming from? The earth, the world. Minds are locked into this planet. Minds are controlled by the world system, regulated by time and space. And so attitudes and tastes and decisions are made under the influence of the world. And they're enemies of the cross. Actually, I think we have a contrast here, two lifestyles, two examples. One kind of hidden as in that phrase, enemies of the cross, because there we have one example based on the principle of the cross, which is a life of self-denial and sacrifice. Self-denial, 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 right? And then we've got the other based on the enemy of the cross, a life of self-indulgence. Just indulge the self. Just indulge the self. Again and again and again. And the result of this, of course, fighting against the gospel of the cross is destruction. That's why I didn't leave out that little phrase at the beginning of verse 19. Their destiny is destruction. They're gambling. People like this are gambling. And I know those of you who are younger and those of us who are older, all of us, there's a, we almost get this idea we can roll the dice and we hope we're right. Roll the dice for the short-term buzz against long-term consequences. But if we go down that route, it will lead in destruction. Wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. If you want to press on, if you want to win the prize, if you want to finish the race, you can't compromise here, folks. There are certain people with certain examples, we simply cannot afford to follow. Avoid. Write that on your heart and mind. Lastly, um, running out of time here, uh, remember, this is the third thing, uh, if we really want to press on. Uh, again, uh, a doctrine that's often ignored in the church this idea of um, remembering the return of Jesus Christ. This is essential for our pressing on. Verse 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly body so that we'll be like his glorious body. Again, we've got um, contrast here. We've got to remember where our home is. We've got different homes uh, Christians, lovers of the cross, can say, but our citizenship is in heaven. Now, that means we've got dual citizenship. You know, I'm a, a citizenship 
I have a, sorry, I'm a citizen of, I think, the United Kingdom. I think that's what's on my birth certificate. We have Ecuador, haven't we? Yeah? Is that where you're from? You're proud of that? That's good. We've got South Africa represented here. Anywhere else fancy in the world, any other nationalities? Australian over here? And Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, of course. Uh, yes, sorry about that, Brother Bob. <laughs> We've taken that as red. There's been a lot of people from the South. Anybody else from any part of the world? Well, it doesn't matter where we're born. The point is, our real citizenship is in heaven. And by the way, this is the lower country, as it were. Heaven is the higher country. That's our real citizenship. That's where it really belongs. We're born into the United Kingdom or Ecuador or Australia, but we're born again into heaven. Different home, different destination, different motives, different allegiances. If you want to press on, this is what we've got to remember. We've got to remember that. So I'm not going to get too comfortable here. I'm not going to get bogged down in worldly issues. I just want to go home because my citizenship is in heaven. And then, of course, we're to await for his return, verse, the end of verse 20, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus will return and wind up this bankrupt world. He will establish his eternal kingdom. And it's as certain today as it was in Paul's day, despite all the weird speculation. And I know the problem is with us is that there's so many weirdos around with so many weird theories about this that we tend just to forget about it. But he is going to return as certain today as it was in Paul's day and as vital necessary today as it was in Paul's day. And it's approximately 1950 years nearer than it was in Paul's day. And our society is wobbling on the edge of disaster. War and decadence and injustice and cruelty and violence rule. Family life is being battered. The unborn child is not safe. Old people will increasingly not be safe. It is an awful, stinking world. And one day, God will say, enough. Enough. And he will return Listen, if you really want to press on, you've got to see your citizenship is in heaven, and you've got to eagerly await the Savior. By the way, if we can say none of this is true, I'm not following the gospel pattern. I am not avoiding the enemies of the cross. I'm not actually thinking about my citizenship, and I'm not looking forward to his return. Well, then you are in a heap of trouble. Lastly, What's he going to do when he returns? Who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly body so that we'll be like his glorious body. By his dynamic, or dynamite, sorry, dynamite-like power, he's going to transform us. Our present bodies are weak, subject to change and decay and weakness and death. It's nothing like his resurrection body at all. So on his return, his people will be made just like his glorious body, adapted to and adapted for eternity. First Corinthians 15 speaks a lot about that. A glorious body, like his glorious body. No pain and suffering and death. No chemo or glasses or walking sticks. Do you know, I've got three funerals to, to be part of or conduct this week, and um, I, I'm looking forward to a day where there'll be no more dying. 
No more death, no more funerals, no more grieving. We eagerly await. Don't we? We eagerly desire the transformed body. Do we? We should. To press on, to finish the race, to get the prize. We must see our citizenship is not here. Who cares about borders and flags and all those kinds of things? We eagerly await a savior from there. The next big, greatest event in history will be the return of Jesus. And he's going to transform us. You might be happy with your body now, but you ain't seen nothing yet. Called? Are you called? Have you been saved? Are you being kept? Are you pressing on? Pressing on, pressing on. Then here's three clues about that pressing on. To do it better is to uh, follow the gospel pattern. Avoid those who live as enemies of the cross and remember the return of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, sitting here with your people in an attitude of worship, we can all say we want to press on. That's when we go out into this cold, dark evening and into a hostile environment tomorrow that we find it all so much harder. And so we pray that you will fill us with your Spirit and convince us of true doctrine and enable us to follow these mentors that you've given to us and to the church, to avoid these, these people who are out to destroy us and to remember that our citizenship is in heaven and you're going to come one day and transform us all. Lord, write all this truth on our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.